All right, you've got some notes there, and I'm going to be working through these. Um, I'm hoping that we're able to cover everything in our time, but I'm also hoping you're willing to dialogue with me over some of these aspects, right, so that we can talk together, you can ask questions, or I can even ask you questions. I hope you have access to a Bible. Does everybody have access to a Bible? If you don't have access to a Bible, maybe snag one, or obviously looks like maybe on your cell phones you can use one, because I will be talking through the notes, some of the theoretical stuff that it's worth talking about, and then I'm going to use examples from Scripture for us to take a peek at and see, and for us to get a little practice. Uh, usually, a course like this, if it were done in a seminary, would last about 40 hours of class time. So we are doing a very shortened version, but I'm hoping that it's helpful for you uh, and good for all of us as we try to think through reading God's Word. I've got nine kind of main section headings. They're, they're, they're noted in the bold. So the first one is interpretation, not just how, but who, what, and why. Some of them will go more quickly than others. I've got kind of subheadings under each of those sections as well, so you can follow along where I am going, and we can talk them through. But l- let me start with this. Um, I, I, I don't want to jump into the how to do interpretation until we ask some of the other questions, the who, the what, and the why. And let me explain what I mean. The how to read the Bible is rooted in who wrote it, what the Bible is, and why we're reading it in the first place, right? I mean, so please don't see us starting with some kind of mere mechanics. We're just trying to kind of figure out mechanically how to read the Bible. This entire process of being readers of Scripture is about being disciples of Jesus Christ. Like we are submitted to His Lordship, we are submitted to His sovereign communicative Word, and we are then understanding how we relate to the text and use the text based upon who God is, what He wrote, his, what His Holy Word is, and then, of course, why we're doing it in the first place, which means we come with a level of submission. So the who is just quite simply, it's the living God. He isn't just speaking in an ancient text that we somehow have to translate into our day, God intended from the start through His Word and by the work of the same Spirit that inspired the text who now indwells and ministers in His church to have God's Word be a living, breathing document that ministers to His children. So we understand that the who is this living God who still speaks to us and addresses us weekly, Lord willing, daily through His Word. The what is the Word of God, and knowing what the Bible is is an important aspect of interpreting it well. It's not just, it doesn't mean it isn't having historical aspects to it, but it's not just an ancient historical document, like you would find something that Plato wrote, or or some other major leader in your history, or maybe in my country. This is the living, breathing Word of God. So you have to have a doctrine of Scripture. Maybe you hear the word doctrine a lot. I just like to define the word doctrine as truths, the truths about Scripture. So you have to have a doctrine of Scripture to know what you're dealing with. It cannot be interpreted simply like any other book. It requires a different kind of response. It requires a different kind of handling. And we'll talk about some of those aspects even today as well. Finally, why are we interpreting it? Uh, the, the why involves the life and the ministry of the people of God. We are interpreting this book so that we can be inundated with the truth about God and His world. We are, in, we are interpreting it so that we can minister to it. 
minister it to our children, to our friends, to other people in the church, in, in community groups or Bible studies, but even to a world that needs to know God's Word. How many people in this, in this major city of Jakarta know God's Word, have access to God's Word? So what you are doing is learning this Word to not only minister amongst yourselves at CCC, whatever fellowship you're part of, but to declare the truths about God to people in your communities, in the places where you work, to your family, etc. Knowing how to do that is important. Of course, the ultimate why is for the glory of God. That we honor God and give Him glory as we interpret His text and understand it well. There are difficulties in interpretation. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. One thing to think about when interpreting Scripture is that not is that quite simply, it's not easy. Like the reason it's worth having a class like this uh, on even, even on a Saturday, right, uh, is because interpreting, interpretation of Scripture isn't easy. So here's a text that's often misunderstood. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. And I'll just read the text for us. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Now note verse 13. In Him you also, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, notice it says when, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, that might, based upon the English reading there, I'm reading from the ESV. Isn't that the translation you guys often use? ESV? Okay. In the ESV, that could easily be read as arguing that there was a belief that came before the work of the Spirit. But that wouldn't, and especially in the English when it says, when you... And then it says believe, which are speaking as if it's past tense. And then it describes this work of the Spirit as if you're kind of on your own functioning, and then the Spirit has a role that comes into it. But let me explain something. The Bible wasn't originally written in English. It was originally written in Greek. And those verbs, the ones that you, those, those translated as verbs in verse 13, right? When you heard the word of truth, were uh, believed in Him, sealed with the promises, those participles there, so verbal forms, are actually not giving any time designation whatsoever. So if you were to interpret verse 13 as having a chronological order, you would be misreading that. And for doctrinal reasons, that's important too. Because we actually want to understand, not just from this text, but from the rest of Scripture, that's actually the work of the Spirit that facilitates the very believing that you do in the first place. So a text like this could be misunderstood if you aren't careful to pay attention to all its details. Now I realize even the, the very, very moment I give this as an example, I potentially distance some of us from the text because not all of us can know Greek. Right? Not all of us might know the original language. In the least, it's important to say that there are numerous facets of interpretation that we're going to be talking about in the next few hours. Most of them you can do. But that isn't to say 
that you can do everything you wanted to do without the biblical languages. They are important, which is why it is significant that in your church there are leaders or individuals who are able to wrestle with the original languages. So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to distance the text from you, but just to be realistic and say that reading right there I did in Ephesians 1.13 would be hard to do if you didn't know New Testament Greek. But there's a lot of other things that we can do without knowing Greek, to be faithful to God's Word and to Scripture. But all that to say is, a surface reading of Ephesians 1.13, you might have actually had a distorted view of how you're saved and the relationship of the Spirit to your salvation had you not thought through all the nuances of how a text works and how it communicates. So the very reason we're gathered here today is because it's not easy. There are things that we need to wrestle with. So I I want to start this next section, a reasonable approach for interpreting the Bible. I want to start by giving you the big picture. So I'm going to give you, I'm just calling it a reasonable approach. Here is a three-step process you could do anytime you're interpreting a text. And then I'm going to, with you, I'm going to walk through one text. So in essence, we're going to start with the big picture, and then the rest of our time today, I'm going to fill in a bunch of the details. But I want to start by saying here is a three-step process that you can do to understand and interpret God's Word. One thing I want to ask first is this. Is it possible to read the Bible without an agenda? Is it even possible to read the Bible without an agenda? And one example of of, of a poor reading of Scripture is it could be called the Just Give Me Jesus approach right? Where there's no theological categories being brought to the text. There's no doctrine, creedal, confessional. There's no ecclesial or church kind of context. It's kind of a me and Jesus approach. We need a rigorously thought out hermeneutic. We need to think through how I interpret, the why, the what. It's not whether we have a theology Even if you are sitting here today as an atheist, if you come in here and you don't believe this Christianity thing at all, and you're just kind of interested to hear how a Christian reads the Bible, you are coming with a theological system in mind. You are bringing categories to the text. So it's not as if we don't have a a theology. It's whether or not we are aware of what theological categories, what things we bring to the text, and we want to think through those this, this afternoon. So here's the three-step process of interpretation. First would be context analysis. The first thing you would do is analyze the context, right? And there are three parts of that. The The one is historical. In His providence, God wrote a book, a collection of books, but the Bible is this overall canonical book that was written by different authors in different eras of time. So you need to think through what historical features in any given passage would be helpful to understand the text. I'll give you a real clean example of this in just about seven or eight minutes. But there are going to be things that are different in in the biblical context than in yours. And if you're going to understand the biblical context, you will need some historical background. Even me being in your city this week, when, if I, you know, when I go back home next, uh, just on Monday even, when I go home on Monday, if I'm explaining things about my visit here, I would have to contextualize 
because the cultural differences, even though we are coexisting on this planet at the same time, there are cultural differences between what I see in Jakarta and what I see in Chicago. And for me to explain to my wife or my children or friends of what I saw about how traffic is done and tolls or how weddings function or family or how church is done or all the, I would have to use maybe analogies. I would have to explain different things about context. I'm not making a judgment either way about my context or about yours, but I'm having to contextualize it so they can picture how it works and what it looks like. You have to do the same thing with the Bible. When you have books like the New Testament Gospels written 2,000 years ago in an ancient world with very different cultures, without cars, without telephones, with other religious issues, that would need to be explained. Again, in, in, in a short order, I will give you an example of that. Things that you might want to talk about with historical context would be author or date, it would be the audience, what do we know about the audience, and other social cultural aspects that are significant. Maybe one aspect that's, uh, we were talking, a few of us were talking last night at dinner, and if you were to describe, we were trying to think what's the best way to describe like American food. And honestly, I couldn't think of anything for a few minutes. And then finally we kind of decided one aspect about American food is convenience. Right? They want convenience. Americans want convenience. And that is a, is a value that will direct and determine where restaurants are located, uh, how much space there is for parking, is there drive-through, which more restaurants use drive-through than they actually use the tables in the building, the way it's packaged, even the kind of food that they'll cook, because for whatever reason, right or wrong, right, if you don't even have to make a judgment about it, Convenience is a big deal for Americans. And if somebody's going to open an Indonesian restaurant in Chicago, which would be, I'd be more than happy if you did, you're going to have to think about contextualizing that in Chicago. They will want convenience, right? In contrast to maybe other cultural values that might be here that would need to be explained, social values. Maybe here it seems like in this context, there's a bit more of an honor-shame culture than there is in America that would need to be understood if someone's going to live here, get married here, relate to their family well here. You would need to explain to an American what, what you just is, 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 is as normal as the oxygen you're breathing because an American didn't grow up in that context. So we need to do that with the Bible, and we'll see an example of that in a minute. Another context isn't historical, it's literary. Literary context is saying, where does this passage fit into the book? So where is this, this passage that we're interpreting, where does it fit in the book? So we're coming to approach a text, right? Maybe you, and not me, let's say you were preaching John, the second half of John 14 tomorrow. You were going to prepare the sermon. The first thing you would do, based upon what we've talked about so far, is think through the historical context. Are we in the Old Testament? Is this under the Old Covenant? Well, this is the New Testament. Okay, this is first century Jewish, Greco-Roman context. 
is there anything in the text that needs to be explained based upon its historical situatedness? Then the second thing you would do, okay, where am I? I'm not in John 1. I'm in John 14. So what's gone on before? Where am I in the story of the Gospel as a whole? What issues have already been raised and addressed by the Gospel that I need to come to the text knowing before I'm going to rightly interpret what the words in the text are saying? Finally, the last thing with context is redemptive context. Where does this passage fit into redemptive history? When I say redemptive history, what do I mean? What's, what, what do I mean when I say redemptive history? Can somebody give me a, an answer to that? What's redemptive history? Have you heard that term before? I see some nodding, but Gray, you should, of course, you've heard it before. Somebody try. Give me an answer. What do you think? Redemptive history as a context for interpreting the Bible. What's that mean? Yeah, how it leads to the redemption. So maybe, maybe another way of saying what you're saying is where in the entire biblical story does this passage fit? So we're not just thinking historical context, where in human history, so we understand different cultures, different values, different aspects of a, of a nation or a world. We're not even just thinking literary context, where in John, let's say, does this take place, or where in Ezekiel does this take place. Now we're thinking redemptively, is this in the old, is this before Christ? Is this text pointing to Christ? Is this text during Christ's ministry? Is it after His resurrection and ascension? Sometime in the life of the early church? Where between creation and new creation does this passage fit? Because that will give me lenses to again understand the context. So when, when I say context is the first step, there's three aspects of that. The historical, the literary, and the redemptive. A second step would be the content analysis. So you go from the context to looking around the passage, where it fits in history, in the, in the book, the larger book that it's in, and in the Bible story as a whole, to looking at the individual details of the text. And if anything, one thing I'd want to say to you th today is to encourage you to be careful readers of Scripture. Like to look at the details. Again, the text I'll show you in a minute in the Gospel of John that you should have as a church already gone through recently I want to show you how careful you need to look at the details. So here are some aspects of content analysis. You want to isolate the literary unit. You want to find a, a, a preachable or single unit of text. So for me, I'm preaching, I preached last Sunday and I'm preaching this Sunday in your church. They, you guys had just finished John 13. For me, the next two units, single units, or the first half of John 14, and then the second half of John 14. I could have preached on one verse. I could have preached on all of John 14. In fact, you could just do a study on the whole Bible every single Sunday. But it's ideal to look for basic sections. The same way in a novel or in a movie where there's different scenes, right? Different scenes in a movie. And then it transitions to something else. The moment you see one transition from another, that's a complete unit. A complete unit of thought. A literary unit. You also want to identify the genre of a text and the structure of a text. When I say genre, I'm talking about the form of literature. Is it a historical narrative? 
like something in the Gospels or something in the Old Testament? Is it poetry, like something you might have in Proverbs? Is it wisdom literature, like something you might have in Ecclesiastes? Is it prophetic literature, like something you might have in Isaiah? Each of those are going to need to be read with slightly different lenses, a different slight focus on how the text is meant to work. But then also structure. Is there a way to break down? So even what you'll see what I do tomorrow in church I actually think there are three sections to the second half of John 14. And each of the three things I'm going to give as points tomorrow come from those three sections of the text. You also then want to outline the passage into its parts. And those parts might include in a letter, that would look different than a narrative. In a letter, you want to analyze things like, for example, the logical flow, the argument someone like Paul in Ephesians is making. If you're reading Paul, he's going to make an argument. Elias is getting angry. Uh, he's, in Paul, he's going to make a logical argument. He's going to say first this, and then this, and then therefore this. But in a story, stories work differently. Notice how stories begin. They introduce characters. They have a plot development. They have some kind of conflict that comes right like how many of you have seen avengers most of you what maybe some happens so i shouldn't even use the example right <laughs> but even in avengers there's a major problem right one major dude that is a problem he brings the conflict into the story and the whole rest of the story is seeing how that conflict is peaked and then ultimately looking for some sort of resolution. You can see that flow in the whole Bible. How God created the world, and immediately in Genesis 3, you've got your conflict. You've got this problem of sin. You've got this separation from God. And the entire biblical story reaches its peak. And then, of course, the resolution comes through Jesus Christ. Right? So the whole biblical story has a conflict resolution flow. But you can see the same thing in any simple text. Uh, like something that we'll look at maybe later this afternoon in 1 Samuel 3 or other texts of individual units. Where is the conflict? How is their resolution? Look for reading narratives that way. Finally, with content analysis, you isolate the literary unit, you identify genre and structure, you outline the passage into its parts, and then you develop what's called a textual big idea. Just a major, what's the major message? What's the major thrust? Main idea in the story, look for key images, things repeated. What is the point of the story? In a minute, we'll look at a text, as I promised, and we'll see what you think of that one. Last, the last one, the last step is contextualization. So we've got three steps. Context analysis, historical, literary, redemptive. Content analysis, the details, the flow, the nature, the breakdown of the text itself. And then contextualization. And this is where we're trying to see how God is speaking that text into our context. And we'll talk more about what these, each of these are in a few minutes. But here are some themes, some, some application themes for contextualization. What does the text say about the nature of the triune God? What does the text say about the nature of humanity? What does the text say about the nature of redemption? Those are three 
graspable categories that you can and should use as you try to interpret a text. What's it say about God? What's it say about humanity and the sinful condition? And what does it say about the redemption, redemptive story? Like Those are ways to grab it. A guy named Augustine, you ever heard of him? He says that every text should ultimately point us to love God or love neighbor, right? And I think those three categories helpfully get us in that place. So let me, let me take you to a place called John chapter 3. Turn to John 3. You ready for this? I want you to be careful readers. I want you to read carefully with me. Have you heard this? Have you read this text before? I hope so. Any, anybody willing to read uh, John 3, 1 through verse 16? Who'd be, willing to, who'd be willing to read that for our group this morning? Are you? All right, let's look. Three, three aspects. I just went through the big picture. I didn't teach you all the details of it. We'll get to that later. I wanted to start by giving you the overall summary, context, content, and contextualization. And then I wanted to take you to a text and show you how to do that in this example. So let's start with the context. First, we're thinking historical context, right? Are there any things in the text that need explanation? Anything that you would say might be significant? Please note, read carefully. What in those 16 verses might need some explanation? A good clue is that usually in the first couple verses of every individual story, it's going to give you clues about location or certain context, things that it wants you to know for the story to make sense. And I can tell you that right here in the beginning, that's the case as well. So you tell me, what do you see in in these 16 verses that need some context explanation historically? What do you see? Yeah. Born again, yeah. So, I mean, and that might even be a more theological question, right? Very much in regard, and I can redemptively or even at the level of content. I mean, that might be more of a content question regarding theologically what's that look like and moves to contextualization. Look specifically anything historically. So anything historically in this text that might be important to interpreting it rightly. Look at verse 1 closely. What do you see in verse 1? Yeah, I mean, uh, who is this Nicodemus guy, right? Now, let me give you a couple details. Again, this is where knowing the context is a little helpful. The, The Gospel of John doesn't name people very often. Like, what if you only had John and didn't have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would never know that the mother of Jesus was named Mary. Who's the blind, the blind guy in John 9? Blind guy. Who's the lame man in John 5? Lame man. Right? I mean, we're talking, you just, don't, you don't even know who the beloved disciple is in this gospel, right? Like there are numerous people that are completely unnamed. So when John, first of all, when he gives a name, it's a big deal. Now, any, any of you wearing Nike shoes? Nicodemus comes from the word Nike. It really means from Nikao, the Greek word, Nikao, 
And it literally means the conquering one. So his name means one who conquers. Now that's interesting, isn't it? There's other details in the text that are important. Look at, again, look at the descriptions, in, at least in the ESV ordering, look at the descriptions that surround the name of Nicodemus. What does it say about him? Pharisee. Now, tell me, what do you know about those two, those two parties, those two positions? What do you know about Pharisees and what do you know about ruler of the Jews? Do you know anything? Not in general. Do you know anything about the Pharisees and ruler of the Jews? Let me give you some information. The Pharisees were never members of the ruling Jews. Like very, very rarely. In America, and I can't speak in your context for a good analogy, so maybe you can help me with one. But in America, there are two main political parties. Maybe you've heard of these, Republican and Democrat, right? Republican is Donald Trump. Democrat was Barack Obama. You've heard of those guys. It would be like saying that Barack Obama is a Republican and then the leader of the Democratic Party. Now, if an American heard that, they'd be like, that doesn't make sense. Like, you're either a Democrat or you're a Republican, you cannot be both. Yet this text is carefully telling you, and notice on both sides of the name, almost like parentheses, right? It's telling you what seemingly would be a contradiction. That there's this guy who somehow is involved. He's a Pharisee by his personal beliefs. The lower class, grassroots level Jewish party. Yet he's a member of the ruling council, which is the aristocracy, the wealthy. The, 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 the wealthy leaders of Judaism. How can that be? Well, the clue again comes in his name. There is historical evidence that a couple generations before the life of Jesus, the Jews were in a war and they were, be, being, they were battling some Greeks who were challenging some of their area. And a guy by the name of Gurion, which is this guy's like great-grandfather, a guy by the name of Gurion who was a Pharisee, just a low level. He wasn't wealthy. He wasn't in the Congress of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. He, he was just merely a low-level conservative Pharisee. He was brave in battle. He was a military hero. He did some amazing things that brought him great honor. And so they gave him a title, the Conquering One like royalty, a title that would pass down from generation to generation. And they let him have land and property. He grew in wealth and was able to get to be a, have a position in the Jewish ruling council. Yet he still, guess what? He's still a Pharisee in his belief system. He's still a conservative in his belief system. So when this guy is introduced in verse 1 by the Gospel of John, it wants you to picture a very unique individual, right? It wants you to see Nicodemus as the conquering one, right? He's the one right there coming to conquer Jesus. Now, the moment we move from historical context to literary context, 
Look at what happened just before this scene. Like if you just ran to John 3, you're like, yeah, big deal, this guy. So he's a tough guy, right? He's a big, big deal. What's the significance of that? Well, put it in the context of John. What happened in John chapter 2 at the very end? Jesus walks into the temple, right? Um, imagine maybe going to the president or the governor's house in Jakarta and flipping tables over and seeing how long you'd be standing there in the lobby, right? Like imagine going into the White House and just being very frustrated with the Trump, like probably most of the world, and deciding you're going to flip tables and throw vases and just break a few mirrors and just say, this is ridiculous, I don't like what's going on in this country. Imagine how long before a few dozen security guards would be on you and you'd be in real trouble. Jesus goes into the temple, which is not just a religious headquarters, it's kind of like the government authority, the, the capital building, so to speak, of the Jews. He goes in there and he completely, without any given authority, he is God's authority, but he, he, it's not like he was an ordained minister of the priesthood. It's not like he had gone through their seminary. It's not like he was qualified according to their standards. He walks in and he's flipping tables and he's kicking out all these business dealings. And then you can see the encounter. Read it with me in John 2. The Jews show up and they say to him, what sign do you, this is, this is verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Please don't hear that, by the way, as just like a soft little question. As if they said, excuse me, sir, if I may, um, do you happen to have a sign? That's not what they're saying. I mean, they are, they are, they walk, picture, picture this courtyard, like all the merchants kind of walk out and, and, and people are to the side and Jesus is standing there saying, this is my father's house and the disciples are listening. And then all of a sudden, boom, doors open, security, temple guards run out, in walk all these priests and then the top official priest walks up, maybe grab him by the collar of some sort and say, who do you think you are? That's what they're asking him. They're not, they're not like apologizing. They're, they're like, do you think you have any right to be here? Do you think you have any warrant to be here? Do you run this place? Now, there's irony in the whole scene, isn't there? Because in reality, he does run the place. But they don't see that. So feel, though, how the narrative is describing tension. What sign do you do to show us for, for, us for doing these things? Then Jesus answered, I mean, Jesus comes harsh. Like, it's not just a cute little saying. He's like, oh, you want to go? Here we go. He's like, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Man, he looks him right in the eye, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews, they mock him. I mean, they're basically calling him an idiot. Like, it took, it took almost half a century to build this, you idiot. I mean, just, that, that's what they're saying. That's what they're communicating. And you say you can do it in three days? Now, a couple things to know, again, about literary context. In the Gospel, really in the Gospels as a whole, every time Jesus has an encounter with, with an opponent, with a Sadducee, with a Pharisee, with one of the Jews, at the end of each encounter, the Gospels usually give you explicit evidence that he was victorious or implicit like 
maybe the disciples walk away and they say, like with the stilling of the storm, when, when Christ confronted nature, right? The disciples say in Mark, who is this? And they're letting you know that, the te- that they're showing that nobody, not just anybody, can control nature. Or the crowd was amazed at his answer to a Sadducee or a Pharisee. This is the only text that actually doesn't tell you by the narrative itself that Jesus won. Because in the minds of all the people sitting around that temple square, Jesus sounded like an idiot. Like, how could he build a temple in three days? In fact, it's so obvious, no disciples like, get him, Jesus. They're like, that doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Like, they, that was stupid, Jesus. I'm, I'm, with the, I'm with the rabbis in this moment. How can you build this in three days? Like, it seems like it's so clueless so that the narrator has to jump in. And what does the narrator say? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And notice, it's, it, it, it says, oh, don't think that it's just like he's talking about a different object. He will actually make clear. And it goes on to say, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Notice how the narrator is saying, in this moment, Clearly the Jews didn't see it, but not even the disciples, but one day they would. That Jesus had the full right to be there. But notice what happens. He's confronted and get Jesus with the authority of His Father doesn't back down. In the Jewish honor-shame culture that He was in, when he was, when he was shamed that way to avoid the kind of public and private persecution He would have received, He should have scurried off, shut his mouth, tail between his legs, run away. But Jesus didn't stop preaching. Look at the end of verse 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so right at the same time, this is verse 23 through 25, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. A couple things to note. He doesn't get shamed. He keeps teaching. He keeps ministering. The Jews are like, it didn't work. We confronted him publicly. We shamed him in front of his own disciples and all the crowd that was there. I mean, this is holiday. There would have been hundreds of thousands of people, at least in in, in town. He didn't receive it. He continued to minister. So they now need to bring in a big dog. They like, we got to go get the big guy. In fact, we got a guy. His name is the conquering one. He is royalty among the Jews. He's got full support of both all the conservatives, the Pharisees, and the ruling liberal elites, the ruling of the Jews. Let's have him come in. And notice how the narrative even transitions at the end of verse 25. For he himself knew what was in a man, right? And immediately in verse 1 of chapter 3, there is one man that he now engages with. Now there's a lot of context. Notice all we've done right there is context analysis, right? We've looked at the historical details. We've looked at the larger literary context in the Gospel of John. You are now primed to see a major encounter 
between Jesus, the Son of Man, and the conquering one, Nicodemus. Now, in, in, any comments on what we've talked before we get into content? Any comments on what, what I've just talked about? Any, 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 any observations, questions, thoughts? Yeah, Jackie. So yeah, unavoidably with context, and more specifically with historical context, you need resources to help you, right? You need Bible dictionaries, you need a good commentary or two, you need some resources to understand the historical context. To be fair, this is one of the more complex ones. Like, they're not all this hard. Like, this one is pretty, but the reason I wanted to show you is how the reason this is a good example is there's only just a little, just a few words. Everything I just told you, at least about the historical context, the literary, we went to John 2, but everything I just told you about historical context came from verse 1. Like, it's all from verse 1. So you need to know, almost like a, like, like a hyperlink, right, on your computer, when you click on something and a window opens up, like the word Pharisee, click, click, what does that mean? The word ruler of the Jews, click, click, what does that mean? Ooh, Nicodemus. We don't even know his mother's name. We don't know blind guys and lame guys, but why is this guy get, being given the name by the author of John? Click, click, help me understand what Nicodemus means. And a good commentator or a Bible dictionary would be a wonderful place to go, right? And a wonderful thing for even a church to have. We, at our church, we have just a few of those on the shelf available for people if they're leading a small group or a Bible study to, or even for their own personal study to look up some of those things. So again, to be fair, there is some work involved with the context analysis and they're not all this complex. I wanted to show you how sometimes Scripture doesn't like list three paragraphs to want you to think about historical context, it'll mention one word, one phrase, one party, one name, and you need to explain that. It'd be like in Indonesia, what's it, is it called the monas? Is it monas? Monas. I have no idea what that represents, right? I, but I saw it driving by the other day. But I have no idea what it means. So if, there, if I'm reading something that you're writing, and there's a whole lot of religious history or political history connected to that, and you were to mention that in writing, as, as, as a guy from Chicago, I'd be like, click, click, what is that? Like, what does that even mean? How does that relate to what you're saying? And once I got information on that, now I could make sense of the rest of what you were talking about. Or if 400 years from now, somebody hears the name Obama, like, who's Obama? You, you, you might, is it an African guy? Well, kind of, but he was actually an American president. Like, knowing information on Obama would be important for somebody 400 years from now if they're looking at something in American or even international history around this time of life, right? So just knowing that background information can become important. And it doesn't always have to be huge paragraphs. It can just be a word or a phrase or a name or a party that the Bible is assuming you're going to know those things. And when you don't know those, look them up. That's why I said this should cause you to slow down in your reading. Don't just look for the first key words. I know it's easy to go to born again, right, for theological reasons. But you haven't even gotten past the context yet. 
you haven't even gotten out. I mean, we'll keep working through the text, but you haven't even gotten past. This is a battle about to take place. Ironically, I think most people think John 3 is a friendly guy coming to meet with Jesus. Like they kind of view it as a, hey, Jesus, you're a great guy. You got some good teachings going on. A couple cool miracles. Help me out here. Tell me about the gospel, will you? Uh, if that is the reading, then that means they breezed right past verse 1 and never even saw what it meant. Be like somebody 400 years from now seeing the name Barack Obama and going to Africa to find out what they can find out about him and not thinking about the White House, right? Like if you don't know the context, historically, literary, you're going to be in trouble. Other thoughts, comments, yeah. Well, we'll, we will talk about we will talk about how one determines meaning. Is there a single meaning? We'll get to that this afternoon. Part of me would want to put the emphasis on taking seriously the communicative intention of the text itself, right? It's not just a free-floating book of cool sayings. It's actually written in letting not just the, the the words or the phrases, but the form of the text. If it's a story. Listen to it and interpret it as a whole story before you then want to pillage and pull out key aspects that need to be communicated. Because everything about this born again thing is going to be interesting when you think being reborn, having a certain family heritage means a whole lot more when you realize that this guy's royalty. Like he's royalty. And it's in the context of royalty that Jesus talks about being of good birth. That, that changes or adds nuance to the meaning that could be completely missed and we could just think of it in loose theological ways which aren't necessarily wrong, but get the full meat. Get the full meat of the text and let it do its communicative work. Somebody else had a hand up? Yeah. Uh, I want to answer your questions as yes and yes. Um, yes, they would have interpreted um, with, with, with a lot of the kind of depth. I mean, someone like Augustine, for example, was much closer to the historical context. And he definitely, in his... I've worked through most of what he's written on John. And he definitely was aware of the historical nuances of the text. You see that in Calvin's commentaries. He wrestles with the Greek language. He wrestles with the historical context and literary context. He really deals with those things. But also, yes, to the fact that we do have more access now. Like we, we just have so many more resources, so much more. And it can be on your laptop. You can buy Logos software or something like that and have hordes of books right at your disposal, 50 different Bible dictionaries that would explain exactly who and what the Pharisees are. So that all you had to do is look up Pharisee and you find out that they weren't the ruling class, but then you look at the text and it says he was a ruler and you're like, that doesn't make sense. 
And then you look at a commentary like, who was Nicodemus? What do we know about Nicodemus? And a commentator like my own commentary will explain all of that right there in just a couple pages. So if you were reading my commentary, you would have gotten a, a, a version of everything I just told you regarding these historical details to develop the story for your reading of it. So, so yes, th- th- it's not like nobody could read the Bible right? until all of a sudden a couple of years ago. God has always been mediating His truth through God, His Word. But that doesn't mean necessarily that the resources back then were the same as they are now. They're not. We're, we're very advantaged. You can have it all on your laptop and look up all this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, part of the that's a that's a good question, but and it bumps on another topic. Today, Christians, at least since modernity, Christians love the historical aspect of the Bible. Um, and I've I've said I've, I don't know I've said it in one context here. I can't remember where, but my concern for us today is we've got this kind of a level of biblical literacy that's drenched with historical stuff or biblical details, but we have a theological illiteracy. Someone like Augustine may not have had all the resources we have today and the knowledge of historical context, but man, did he have the theological categories, right? Where I worry the opposite can almost be true in context now, where you have people have tons of background knowledge. They love archaeology. They love all this details of various parties, but they don't necessarily know how to relate it to the larger biblical story of Scripture and all of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. So either way, there's always been kind of an imbalance that could happen that needs to be balanced. So yes, there's a massive amount of access to historical knowledge now that really hasn't been. I mean, even just think of the advance of the computer. How about just the printing press? Like a few 500 years or so of the printing press radically changed the fact that now you can have more books sitting back there in the back of the room than most humans have ever had in human history. And they're right at your fingertips. Then you add computers now, and you can search for word or phrases in seconds over hundreds of books rather than having to flip through every single page. Are you kidding me? Yes, we have more access. But that's also turned us into these data collectors. We've got tons of puzzle pieces, and we have no idea what the picture is that we're putting together. So we've got to try to balance those two, and we'll, we'll bump into some of those things more later today. Somebody else had a question or comment. Yes. So the question would be then, does night, and I would say the night actually strengthens this argument immensely. Notice what you did, though, and this is what most people do. When they hear the word night, they try to reimagine the scene. So they picture night, and they're picturing, what are they picturing? Coming when you're not seen. Coming in secret. Like, humbling, humbling. 
but just as likely historically, night in, a, in an agrarian culture when everyone's farmers, it was nighttime when Jesus was with most people. By coming at nighttime, Nicodemus had the biggest crowd around Jesus with which to shame him. But there's even more than that. And the evidence, I think, is in the text. Every example, every single example of night language in the Gospel of John, hands down, is always negative and always involving conflict. If you go to the very beginning of the Gospel, the first five verses, what does John say? Light came into the darkness. And the darkness could not overcome it. So right there, it's giving this huge umbrella. Okay, guys, this is a story of a broken, fallen, sinful creation and its battle against Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, right? So the whole story, but every, like chapter 10 mentions cold and dark. John 13, right, the, the, the supper when Judas betrays Jesus, like, we all knew it was a supper, which means it was evening. Like, we knew what time it was. And right after Satan entered into Judas and Judas departs, what's the narrative say? And it was night. Now, is it saying it was night to tell you about what time it was? Or is it telling you the darkness is encroaching upon Jesus? The battle is there. The Gospel of John loves to use symbolic language like lightness, or dark to create the context that explains the action taking place. So the very fact that this text speaks about the night should already clue you in that this is a battle scene. And the evidence for that is not me guessing about when did people come at night. Like it's not me guessing about how did they come at night or why would they come at night. It's actually just reading the text. When I read the Gospel of John, every time I see night or darkness, it's evil fighting Christ. He came at night. What should I be thinking? It's a battle scene. So look at the evidence. You've got his name, which emphasizes battle. You've got these two positions, which connect to this historical person that we know. You've got this night language, which throughout the Gospel is all a battle scene. You would be hard-pressed to try to find a positive reading of this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus. Does it, does that, is that helpful? We'll talk about that. And, and the language I'll use later today is the difference between interpreting text versus event, right? So I want us to wrestle with that question all the way through. Are we interpreting an event or are we interpreting a text? That's, a, that's a, maybe a newer category or, or maybe even a complex category, but I want you to think in those terms. Technically, you are not just using this as a window to look at something on the other side. You are actually interpreting this. This isn't a window that, oh, yeah, 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 I can get through that, okay, gone, or I can get through that or gone. It's not a window. It's the text. One of the worst sermons I ever heard was by an elder at a church that I was going to in California on a Mother's Day where the, this elder preached on the giving or the putting of Moses in the river by his mother, right? Trying to save Moses' life. And his, and his three points on the sermon 
was what was Moses' mother thinking when she put him into the water? What do you think we know about what Moses' mother was thinking? We know nothing. Like, we don't even have a clue what she was thinking. We, 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 she, she could be like, dude, his diapers always stink. I'm glad to get rid of them. Like she, like she could have said something like, we, do, we don't know what she was thinking. But what was he doing? Was he interpreting a text? Or was he reimagining an event and then trying then to draw applications in meaning from a reconstructed event and not from the text itself. And this is innately what we do all the time. So you almost have to discipline yourself and ask yourself a question, especially with historical narratives. Am I interpreting a text or an event? So if you said to me, well, give me evidence from the text, I'd give you the name of Nicodemus. I'd talk about the various rulers. When you say, well, he came at night, don't, you're not seeing me say, well, here's what I think was happening or why I would come at night. I'm giving you textual evidence about what the word night is communicating, right? I'm letting the text communicate it. I'm not jumping to. To be honest, I think the reason why we often misread John 3 is because we jump right to the event. We read a few words in the first three verses where all of the context is given, and then we just start like, hearing it but we struggle because jesus is so harsh in these texts like he i mean if nicodemus was a nice guy right some sweet old guy hey jesus i'm really interested in this thing called the gospel i might be at a point of conversion soon look at look how jesus responds truly truly i say to you and every time you see that that's not how we talk but every time jesus does the double truly that's like an authoritative state. It'd be like saying, it'd be like me saying this. Now listen to what I'm about to tell you. He says truly, truly three times in 11 verses. Do you think he's talking to like a oh, sweet old man? Oh, come sit with me. Yeah, let me tell. He's like using confusing language. He like Nicodemus is at some point like, I have no idea what you're talking about. What are you, an idiot? Like, is that what Jesus would say to a nice guy? No. The entire encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus is a sword fight of words. And Nicodemus is trying to annihilate the God of the universe. You've got, picture the scene, right? You've got the best representative of God against the best representative of man. And they are going down in a showdown together. It is not a friendly little can I ask you a couple questions about eternity? That's not what's happening. That's not, and I'll show you that in a, even more when we get into context. So, any other questions about that? When you look at content, then we're looking at the details of the text itself. We've already answered some of the context questions. We need to look at content. Now, one of the aspects of content is genre. Genre is just a fancy word for the literary form. And notice what you have here. You have, you have a dialogue. You have a conversation going back and forth. And there are several kinds of dialogues that you see in the Gospel of John. And one of them is a conflict dialogue, 
where they are debating and, and challenging one another. There's legal dialogues as well. Legal dialogues are when the Jews and Jesus are battling over some point of law. There's also what can be called just a rhetorical dialogue where you're really not trying to agree. You're just trying to rip on the other, uh, other person, right? This is a challenge dialogue where Jesus and Nicodemus are trying to win a debate. They're trying, to, they're trying to throw shame on the other person. They're not trying to meet in the middle. They're not trying to barter. This is like if they were fighting, one would be dead at the end. Right? If they were fighting, one would be dead. In an honor-shame culture, one person is going to be shame poured upon him, and Nicodemus is trying to do that to Jesus. And you can see how it starts out. So let me translate it for you. Not translate from the Greek. Let me translate the dialogue for you, starting in verse 1. The narrator gives us the context. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He sets you up. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, all the conflict is already brewing with those words. Then Nicodemus starts to fight. Please don't read verses 2b really the rest of verse 2, please don't read that as friendly. That is smack talk in the ancient world. You say something hyperbolically. Do you know what I mean by hyperbole? You say something like exaggeratingly untrue to mock somebody. I walk up to Elias and I say, dude, you are like the LeBron James of theology. You, I mean, you are like Bovink in your knowledge. of. You're like Tim Keller as a pastor. Like, I just, like, I'm praising him in such ridiculous ways that he actually gets offended at me, right? That's what Nicodemus is doing. Rabbi, we know. Who's the we, by the way? Notice that. Like, he's, he came representing people, didn't he? We know that you are a teacher come from God. Don't miss that. What's a teacher in the ancient world in, in Judaism? That's a rabbi. Rabbi means you're ordained. If Jesus had been ordained, he would have had freedom to speak authoritatively in the temple. He just got mocked in the temple for not being ordained. Do you see how it's hyperbole? He goes on, for no one can do these signs. Wait a second. They just said he couldn't do signs the previous text. They just said, show us a sign. Oh, clearly you're doing such great signs. I mean, imagine the way he's mocking him. Picture, by the way, Nicodemus with this entourage, with this group of people. Arguably the crowd moved. Jesus was teaching some evening when all the farmers were off work. He waited till all the people were there. The crowd is laughing at Nicodemus. And no one wants to mess with him because he's probably got the royal guard sitting right next to him. And then he even throws down the final comment. For no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him, which they just declared was not true. Now, that explains why Jesus comes strong right away. Notice, he does, Jesus, if, if, Nicodemus had, if Nicodemus had said, you know, can you just tell me about the cross or like what you're here for? Let me tell you something, man. Like, that wouldn't make sense. But when Nicodemus shreds him, mocks him. We know you're nothing. We know you're, you're not from God. You, there's nothing you're doing that represents God. We have, there is nothing here. Even the teacher come from God is probably an allusion to Deuteronomy 18, which is the future coming of Moses. Like he is using technical jargon to mock Jesus' person. 
So what does Jesus do? It's a challenge. He's got, he's got to engage. It's, it's a fight. He's fighting representatively for the honor of God. So he pushes back. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus, so Jesus just as strongly says, no, 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 you listen to me. Notice how forceful he can be. And he says this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there's the little explanation of the literary content is needed here. One key aspect of a challenge dialogue is that there were often playful use of words. Like they would trick each other with language to try to confuse them. They would say a word that could mean two things. That word translated born again, do you have a little footnote in your Bible there? Maybe not on your, your iPhones or whatever they are. But if you have a textual Bible, it, it's, it said born again is the Greek word anothen. And it could be translated born from above. So Jesus used a word that could mean one of two things. Does it mean born again or born from above, right? Is it an adverb of time or an adverb of place? And he doesn't show his cards. He's forcing Nicodemus to make a choice. So even when we say born again, we're choosing an adverb of time. It's technically what Jesus is going to talk about is born from above, which is an adverb of place. And Nicodemus takes it as an adverb of time, but Jesus intended an adverb of place. So even the translator is kind of, you know, has a raw deal here, because what word do you put down? You, should, you, ha- you really have to put a word down that could mean both words, and that maybe in Indonesian there's something, but in, in, in English there really isn't a word there. Nicodemus chooses. Pow, he, you know, notice he mocks. He's not asking a question. Um, I'm a little confused, Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's mocking Jesus. How can a man be born when he is old? Notice how he took it. He took it as an adverb of time, not of place. Can he enter a second? Notice how he tries to slam Jesus. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? How does Jesus respond? Does he respond passively or does he respond strongly? He responds strongly. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Notice, he's using that language again. Again, he uses language that's hard to interpret. Now, he will, not just in this text, arguably, but to be honest with you, the rest of the Gospel and in God's providence, the rest of Scripture fleshes out theologically what those terms mean. But in the context of this dialogue, he is just knocking Nicodemus off his feet. Unless one is born of water in the Spirit, notice now he's saying the answer is born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it was with everyone who was born of the Spirit. At this point, Nicodemus, if it was a wrestling match, he's down to one knee, and he's about to be tipped over. So he throws one kind of little swing to try and get him. How can these things be? And Jesus keeps it coming. Jesus answered him, You are the teacher of Israel? You're going to notice, by the way, starting in verse 10, every rebuke Nicodemus gave to Jesus, Jesus is going to give right back. Nicodemus mocked Jesus for not being a teacher. What's Jesus doing? 
oh, so you're the teacher, Nicodemus. You're going to be the one who teaches, right? Clearly you're the teacher then if I'm not the teacher. You call yourself, the verses, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, notice what Jesus says. We speak. Who's the we of Jesus? Why does Jesus say we? Thoughts? Who's the we? The Trinitarian God? But more importantly, or equally important, who also said we at the beginning of the story? Nicodemus. Like, oh, Nicodemus, you've got a few people on your side? Well, I speak on behalf of the Father and the Spirit. I got a we too. Again, notice the perfect harmony with what Jesus is, what was begun by Nicodemus, and how every single point Jesus is knocking out of the park. We know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you not, do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he gives the trump card, right? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Notice the last thing that Nicodemus had was a big name. Did you know that the most important name for Jesus in the Gospels is Son of Man? It comes from what text? Does anybody know this? What text in the Old Testament? What's that? Solomon, did you say? No. One of the prophets, a guy named Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, there is a prophecy of one who comes like a son of man. And it is the royal entrance of a king. He is all power and all authority. So Nicodemus, to be honest with you, son of man is language in Daniel 7 of the judgment of God. A.K.A. he's a conquering one. How perfect. Nicodemus has a title. Not like this one. Notice how every step of the way, Jesus annihilated his opponent. And at this point, after he said Son of Man, this is where in the ancient world you would pour shame on your opponent. Please hear this, because this is where in the text the Gospel is revealed. So listen to what I'm saying and watch what it shows. Up through verse 13... Everything in the text would say that Nicodemus has been annihilated. And at this point, Jesus could crush his opponent and shame him publicly and become the victor. But he changes gears radically in verse 14. He stops and says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, that's a story from Numbers 22. Are you familiar with that story? No, notice how again the Bible, just like with Nicodemus or Pharisees or ruler of the Jews, it makes one little statement. It wants you to know some further context. Here the context though is redemptive context of a story from the Old Testament. Moses was with, his, with the Jews. He had taken them out of, away from Pharaoh. They're wandering the Jews are like, dude, this isn't the life we called for, right? Like Pharaoh was better than you, Moses. This is a raw deal. We, we'd be better off with Pharaoh. God hears them complaining and sends out poisonous snakes from the woods. Do you remember the story in Numbers 22? He sends out poisonous snakes 
that are biting the Israelites and they're dropping like flies, right? They're dying. All of a sudden, the ones who see their friends and family dying cry out, Moses, intercede for us. Ask God to show us mercy. So God, Moses prays to God and God says, this is my abbreviation of a, of a bigger story. God says, okay, create a bronze serpent, like an image of the one that's coming for judgment. Form a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, and lift it up in the air. And everyone who looks to that bronze serpent, the image, will be saved. Right? Even if you've been bitten, if you look up at the serpent, you will be saved. Notice, the very thing that comes to judge is the one that saves. It is one and the same thing. Why would Jesus say this? Like, why would Jesus all of a sudden throw in this little story of Numbers 22 right at the moment where Nicodemus is about to be crushed and he thinks he is about to be blown away and poured shame upon at the moment the shame should have been given to Nicodemus by Jesus, Jesus says, Nicodemus, I'll take the shame. Everybody see that? Nicodemus says, I'll take the shame. The very thing that's coming to judge you and has the full authority to judge you will be the thing that can save you. Which is why verse 15 ends that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now you need the narrator to step in. The narrator jumps in in verse 16. And here's what the narrator says. Okay, okay. Does everybody see what Jesus just did? Like, in case you miss this, I want to explain it for you in one or two simple verses. This declares that God loves the world. He loves it so much that actually the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the one who is and will judge the world, is also the one who will come and save it so that if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. Like, do you see how the text just gave the Gospel in some of the most potent terms possible? In fact, I even think the translation of 16 should be a little different. Rather than being so loved, like rather than being an adverb of degree, for God so loved the world, I think that, the, 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 I won't talk about the Greek words, but I think it's saying, in this way, God loved the world. See, in the same way God, the, Jesus declared love for Nicodemus, that same love is declared and offered to the world. Because what is the world? Nicodemus comes at night, and is enveloped by the night. But according to the beginning of John 1, the whole world is in darkness. And we challenge God with our broken sinful nature, with our rebellious heart, with all our idolatries. We challenge Him with our lives. Some people worship other gods. They ignore Him altogether. They think He's a philosophical construct of some sort. And that Jesus Christ will come. And if you try to challenge Him, you will be crushed. Yet even though all the shame you've given to Christ and you mock His name and the false worship you've done in, toward Him, Jesus Christ offers you grace because He loves you and is a sacrificial love. Comments, thoughts on any of that? 
What do you think? What did you see me do? In interpretation. What did I do? I read the text very carefully. I slowed down. I asked key questions. What needs to be explained historically? Where does this fit in the literary context? Did you see that? Like without John 2, if I went to John 3 and I, I read John 2, 2 a week ago at church and now I'm in John 3, I might not at all be thinking about the context leading up to this. I understood the, the content, the form. I saw parallels. Nicodemus mentions a we. Jesus mentions a we. Nicodemus has got a big name. Jesus has got a big name. I understand the larger context of John. Night imagery and darkness and all, what all that symbolizes. I understand some genre and the, the back and forth of a dialogue. I mean, to be fair, this is one of the harder texts. It's not like every text is going to be this hard. But this text shows you the multifaceted nature. It shows you the multifaceted nature of interpreting a text in literary context, in the larger story of the Bible. It's got an Old Testament illusion in just eight or nine words. It's got all these genre issues. It's got historical issues. Like There's a lot there, but when you put it all together, is that not a beautiful text? And does that text not declare the gospel so clearly in a way that now has made its commentary verse one of the most famous verses in the world? And the reason it's famous, arguably, is because it's explaining one of the most beautiful texts where God shows humanity their sinful nature and says, I'll take the shame. It, be before we draw some contextualization, what... Any comments? Any any thoughts on all of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't want to say, I, I wouldn't want to say that, that we or you or whoever has, have misread lots of texts. I chose a very tough one. Right? I think there's a lot of texts that you've been reading that I would read the exact same way. I chose a very hard one because it showed you in real specific ways the depth of what interpretation looks like. But also because it's one of the clearest depictors of the gospel in a 16-verse narrative that you're going to find in the Bible. But that's a tough one, right? Uh, I think there's a lot of other texts, probably the majority of texts that you would be reading that you're reading perfectly correctly. Like, confessionally, we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture so that the main things, 
the big things, the important things, the gospel-centric things, those are clear in Scripture so that my 13-year-old son could read those and rightly be in the range of the right view. So I don't ever want to have you study this text and then deny the perspicuity of Scripture. We, I give you a hard example knowing full well that the majority of the texts you're reading right. But on the edges, there's going to be a few that are harder that an example like this that is easy to misread that should encourage you to be even more faithful in learning how to interpret the Bible so that you're seeing it all. Or maybe said another way, even those texts that you're already rightly understanding, knowing how to interpret like this will make sure that you get the full punch of the text. You're communicating its full force. You might have the right theology, but you're not necessarily seeing all the nuancing ways the text is communicating that. And it's not just about kind of hitting a, a basic target. We want to be as precise as we can with God's Word. So within the perspicuity of Scripture, I would argue most of the time you're reading beautifully. Just to say this text is not to shame you or humiliate or undercut your confidence in reading the Bible, but to make you, if, if you walk away the next time you read the Bible and you've slowed down, then I've done my job. If you've asked a few different questions, like if you've thought through context, content, and contextualization a bit more carefully, then you're honoring God's Word appropriately. And it might not change doing these steps and even with some knowledge and resources of these steps. It actually might not change what you used to read the text as, but in some cases it may, and that's okay. Um, but let's not deny the perspicuity of Scripture. Let's not deny that. Let's hold to that as well. Other comments? Other thoughts? So what would be some applications? Some contextualization? Things that this text declares about God, things that this text declares about humanity and its condition, or things that this text declares... What's the last one? What's that? About redemption, correct. What do you think? What would be some things you would draw out from this text that I just interpreted for you that you would say can be contextualized if you were leading a Bible study uh, it, it, with, with some people in Jakarta this coming week? What would be some contextualizing applications that you would make? Let, let's hear a few. Anybody have vocal cords today? That's right. So about the but yeah, the nature of humanity, one is simply it's a it's a work of God that's needed. And that might even just bump into all three of them in some way, right? It speaks about the nature of God, that He's doing a work, or even just the the need of redemption, right? Other thoughts? What does this text communicate about God, humanity, or redemption? Yeah. Your Christian identity outweighs your family. I mean, that would be a powerful text. That he was literally banking on, and maybe in an Indonesian culture, he was banking on his great name and his family heritage, and Jesus Christ undercut that and made his identity 
He pushed Nicodemus' identity to be in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like, my read is that in your context, even maybe more than in American context, that might be a contextualizing truth that would be important to understand. Other thoughts? Grace of God? Why in verse 14? Like, God had the full right just to judge sin. He, he, he had the full right to be offended by Nicodemus or by comparison and analogy, he had the full right to be offended by the world. And yet, what did he do instead? He loved. He sacrificed. Like it talks about grace. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I see. Yes, yes. It and, and it shows, I mean, it, it not only declares that constancy of God's grace as you're saying notice how it reflects the unity of the one covenant of grace of scripture like notice the harmonization between the old and the new testament that the whole biblical story shows that the redemptive work that God was going to do was always to be done through Jesus Christ in the same way that the beginning of John 3 and the end of John 3 show Jesus Nicodemus has a name Jesus has a name Nicodemus has a we Jesus has a we right all of those you even see that with the whole bible the Old Testament has, a, has a, a sacrificial one who is also the one who came to judge. So, do, so is Jesus. That Jesus fulfills all of those things. All the promises are yes in Christ, as Paul says in Corinthians. I mean, you're just seeing how this speaks to the unity of the whole Bible. All of these are applications from this text. Like they're all true from this text. So you could use this text to evangelize people. You could use this text to speak about family honor and that being replaced by Jesus. You could use this text to show the unity of the Old and New Testament in the one story. You could just use this to talk about the amazing grace and love of God. And all of those would rightly be in the range, as we'll talk about a little bit later, in the range of contextualization from this text. It all has warrant in this text. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, is it, that we would mo- that we would emulate, we would copy you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Now, even little things like the the ESV has in verse 4 has an end, right? But the conjunction there probably is translated something like yet. Probably in English should be something like yet. Uh, and I, I but I think that gets often mis- misplaced as if Jesus is continuing on with the same message. But at the beginning of verse 14, he makes a little bit of shift. He shifts a bit. He softens. He's coming down. He's coming down. Then he's pointing up. Oh, you want more proof of this reading? Um, 
con uh, literary context. You see Nicodemus two more times. Anybody know where? In the Gospel of John. You see him two more times. One is in John 7, where he's, with, he's in a council meeting with the ruling rulers of the Jews, and he, he hesitantly stands up for Jesus. Like, basically says, shouldn't we explore this a little bit further? And his own ruling officials mock him. And they even say something like, oh, and you want to be, do you want to be one of his followers? Right? So notice, you're see, from harsh Nicodemus to a much softer. There's one other time you see him. John chapter 19. Two guys go and take the body of Jesus. One is Joseph of Arimathea. And one is Nicodemus. And it says that Nicodemus brought with 100 Roman pounds of spices. Now, did you know that one Roman pound is about a half year's worth of wages? So how much money of spices and perfume did Nicodemus bring to bury Jesus? He brought 50 years worth. Think about that for a second. He brought 50 years of salary that one average worker would make, which tells you a couple things. Number one, he was wealthy, wasn't he? Like, he had resources. Number two, he is bearing Jesus like a king. You don't do that for the average corpse. You would put a little bit on to cover the stench until the body was placed in an ossuary of some sort. He is bearing Jesus like a king. So you go from John 3, total conflict, to John 7, he's asking questions. He's probing. To John 19, he is by his actions confessing Jesus as Lord. You actually almost see a conversion story in the Gospel of John just with the per person of Nicodemus. Now notice, as we'll talk about even this afternoon, that shows that it fits the context in which we read the gospel. It shows that it matches what we did in John 3, matches in chapter 7, and matches in John 19. All right? We spent a little bit of time on John 3, but I hope that's helpful. Let's go over some categories and concepts, and then we'll, then we'll, we'll take a little break, all right? Let me just define uh, seven terms for you. I wanted, to, I wanted to go through that text first so that we could refer back to that numerous times in our time today. First, what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is actually bigger than the task of interpretation. Hermeneutics is the, the study of how to do interpretation. So in a sense, hermeneutics is like a philosophy of interpretation. It's not just interpretation itself. It's not just the task of interpreting. It's, it includes the theory of interpretation. It's the study of everything involved in interpreting a text, meaning and applying it to today for interpretation. So it's a larger category that thinks about the philosophy of why we do and how we do what we do. It's not just step one, two, three. Fair enough, a lot of what I'm talking about today is going to be more the interpretation focus. Technically, hermeneutics is the umbrella under which interpretation is one of them. What is meaning? Meaning is what we are trying to grasp 
when we interpret. It's what we are trying to grasp. I'd like to almost give you a thicker reading of, or a thicker definition would be like this. Meaning is the communicative intention of the author. Meaning is the, so there's, there's a few parts. Meaning is the communicative intention of, of the author, which has been inscribed in the text and addressed to an audience for the purpose of engagement. So there's three parts. It's the communicative intention of the author, but notice, you, you, you can't talk to the author. You can't read the author's mind. You can only read what the author wrote. So it's the communicative intention of the author inscribed in a text that was addressed to an audience for the purpose of engagement. It's got three parts. The author's intentions inscribed in the text and with an intentionality for a reader. And when you draw out the meaning, you're having the author's intentionality located in the text for the purpose of engaging the reader be what you're looking for. What is exegesis? Exegesis refers to the analysis of a text to discern communicative intent. The analysis of a text to discern communicative intent. So I like saying something like communicative intention rather than authorial intention. Because I think communicative intention helps us remember it's bigger than just the author. It also helps us avoid making a mistake of focusing on the event rather than on the text. It drives you to the Word of God itself. So exegesis is analysis to discern communicative intention. Now the word exegesis actually is most prominently used in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 18 says that Jesus Christ will reveal or explain God the Father. And the word is literally exegeomai, which we get the word exegesis from. So it's interesting to say that we talk about exegesis, just as Jesus is the one who exegetes the Father, He communicates, He explains, He reveals who God the Father is, so too our exegesis is trying to explain or reveal the communicative intention of a biblical text. If we were to connect exegesis and hermeneutics, we would say hermeneutics is to exegesis what a rule book is to a game. So if exegesis is the game, interpreting meaning, hermeneutics is the rule book that explains how the game is played. So hermeneutics to exegesis is like rule book to a game. In order to play the game, to exegete correctly, we must play by the rules. And that's where hermeneutics comes in. What is genre? We talked a little bit about genre in John 3. Genre is simply the classification of a kind of liter literature. It's just, is it a poem? Is it a proverb? Is it a narrative, historical narrative? Is it wisdom literature? Is it a prophecy? Just like you might say, is it a joke? 
Is it a news story? Like what kind of genre? You might say the same thing about movies. Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it an action film? Is it a horror film? Is it romance? Like just as you would classify movies into different genres, so you would classify literature. And when you classify that, you expect different things. If you thought you were going to see a comedy and you actually were seeing a horror film, you would have very different expectations about what you were watching. If you think you're interpreting prophecy or wisdom literature, and you're interpreting the Gospel of John, you're going to come with some inappropriate expectations of what you think the text should be doing. You're not looking for the text to be doing those things. So when you see the Gospel of John has a dialogue, which is a sub-genre of narrative, you're expecting things like what I said to you, a play on words, a harsh back-and-forth encounter that needs to be balanced off one another, a lining of things up. What it starts at the beginning gets concluded at the end, a play on key words, a confusing language to trick the other person up. Like you're expecting that in a dialogue. You're not expecting that in a proverb. In many ways, a genre is like a contract. It's kind of like, okay, I'm going to come over at five. I'll, I'll bring some dinner. We're going to watch a film. That's what we'll do. You make an agreement, right? Literary genre functions the same way, that you come to a narrative or you come to wisdom literature with an agreed-upon inner relationship so you can know what to expect or how they should function together. What's literary context? Simply put, it's the material that comes right before or after the text you're interpreting. That could include the context of a sentence is its paragraph, the context of a paragraph is a series of paragraphs, and the context of a series of paragraph or a chapter is the entire discourse, the entire book. What is historical cultural context? The historical cultural context is the history, the culture, the politics, the geography, the religious realities at play in the time period when the text was written. And we've talked about some of these when we looked at context historical. And finally, what is contextualization? Contextualization is the task of bridging a biblical author's meaning to bear in our time and in our place. So, again, even the example maybe of the familial stuff you saw with Nicodemus, how might that bear uh, witness in Jakarta, Indonesia? The aspect of the grace of the gospel, how might that bear witness and be contextualized in Jakarta, Indonesia? The nature of the, the, the beautiful power of the Two Testament Bible being explained through John 3, how does that bear witness about the authority and the beauty of God's Word in Jakarta, Indonesia. And it might be the exact same way you would contextualize it in Chicago, Illinois, but there also might be some differences in the way you frame it, the way you explain it or emphasize it to fit your context. So you're contextualizing it for your location, which in 200 years might be different, but it would still be springing from the authoritative Word of God itself. In one sense, and we'll talk a bit more about this later, but you need to have kind of bifocals 
to do contextualization. You need to have one, one of your lenses focusing on the background of the biblical world to understand some of the historical things in the text. But then you have to have another lens in the foreground, looking at what is to knowing your context. You need to be interpreting not just the biblical text, you need to interpret Indonesia. I loved asking some of you in the meals I had with several of you. I would say, tell me about ministry in Jakarta. Tell me about your culture. Like what you are doing that I cannot do. What you're doing is explaining your context. So what you do is you, lo- you understand the context of the Bible and its message. You understand the context of Jakarta or Indonesia and its main messages. And you try to have the Bible speak into maybe affirming something for the sake of understanding the gospel or oftentimes rebuking certain values and principles and belief systems with the biblical word of God so as to declare the gospel and to live it out. But to do that, you need to know both contexts. So honestly, as much as arguably I might be a bit more prepared than some of you or experienced than some of you in the biblical context, every one of you, is more prepared to contextualize the biblical message in Jakarta, Indonesia, than I am. And the task is, of course, is trying to do both of those really, really well. You're never just you're never just doing one. Knowing your culture, knowing the politics, knowing your history, knowing the values, knowing family values, personal values, work values, knowing the, the loves, the idols of the heart, knowing the idols of the heart of your culture and your people, and just your world, being aware of that so that you can helpfully have the Bible speak into that and declare the beauty and the gift of love declared through Jesus Christ. That's, that, 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 to me, that's where the, excite, the excitement comes. So we, we'll take a break in just a sec, but I've given you the whole thing. What we'll do this afternoon after a little bit of a break is we'll look through and I'll explain some of the details of each of those. But I wanted to start before we stopped and maybe even talked a bit at lunch. I wanted to stop and just say, here's the whole story. Context, content, contextualization. Here's an example of a text to do it in. And and here are some defining terms that you need to understand. And then this afternoon when we come back, I'll flesh out each, some of the details in each of those for you a bit more closely. All right? Thank you.